If you want my notes, text notes to, you guessed it, 59090, and everything in front of me will be sent to you. I want to give a warning this morning. I did the same thing last week. I am preaching uh, the year of Reformation part two. This is called the enemies of Reformation. If you don't know, the word of the Lord over this house for 2024 is reformation. We'll get into that in a moment. But this really is a word for people that are planted in this house. If you are visiting with us this morning, I hope you are blessed. And I hope you receive something from the Lord. And I'm amazed that you visited. I, I am amazed. I mean, it's awesome. I can't, I, I, we were, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. So I'm just, it's awesome. You guys are tough. But we... I want to give a warning that you need to be planted in the house of the Lord. I know this is not a popular thing to say. I know that in society that we live in today, we hop around from church to church looking for the place that most appeases my flesh. What has the best music, the best heating, the best air conditioning? We were talking this morning before I started preaching. I said, you guys realize that we have worshiped in this tent with a 100 degree difference. One Sunday it was 115. This morning it's 15. That's got to, somebody contact Guinness. That's got to be some kind of world record. Come on, that's amazing. A few short weeks, guys. We'll be right in there. Two years later. You just got to laugh to keep from crying. Now we really are close. But be planted. Be planted in the house of the Lord. When I was going over my notes again this morning, I thought, if they're showing up this morning, they planted. But just in case you're not, I want to encourage you. Uh, the only healthy tree is a tree that is planted and rooted. But what we have is a lot of Christians that live their life potted. They're just in a giant pot and they move from one place to the other because they're not ready or willing to be planted in a house. And when you are not planted, you miss out on the most important part of being a part of a church community, and that is spiritually growing. Let me tell you something. The most important part of church community is not a potluck dinner. It is not the friends we make along the way. Although that's beautiful and community is vitally important, but the most important part is that you spiritually grow. Anybody at Mercy Culture that steps up behind this pulpit and touches a microphone or leads us in worship or leads a small group knows that we have a goal to encounter the Lord and to spiritually grow. Not to, to preach some sermon so eloquent that it impresses you and you don't grow. I've been in a lot of messages where I was impressed by the eloquence of the speaker. I was blown away by their intellect, by their ability to turn a phrase, but I left and didn't remember what they said because it didn't, it didn't affect my life and I didn't spiritually grow. I want to tell you this morning, I'm not here to impress you. I'm here to challenge you. I'm here to pastor you, and we want you to spiritually grow. And you can't do that if you're not planted. The Bible says in Psalms 92, 13, they are planted in the house of the Lord, and they will flourish in the courts of our God. We have a lot of Christians that are barely making it, crawling from week to week, and they are not flourishing because they are not planted. And they don't understand that spiritual growth is a journey. It's not something that just happens to you. A, a, a switch is flipped. No, it's a journey. And when you are not planted and committed to a church, you miss out on that journey. If you guys would go ahead and put up the year, uh, the plan for the year. We have a plan already for this year on what we will be ministering on throughout the year. We're going to preach on reforming you in holiness, on your family and finances, a series on abominations, what the things that the Lord hates. We're going to preach about women in ministry. That's right. We believe in women in ministry. Summer of serving, favor forever. We are taking you through a process of spiritual growth, a journey of spiritual growth. And if you're not planted and committed, you will miss out on that journey. It doesn't mean you can't take vacation and miss church. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you to be rooted and planted in the house of the Lord. Let's turn in the Bible together to Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the story of Moses. 
It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I've come to tell you this morning that this means war. The title of my message today is The Enemies of Reformation. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's begin to pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, I'm so grateful that your presence is already in this room this morning. Lord, I thank you that you have met us here all week. Lord, I just lay down performance, comparison, and the need to impress. We th I thank you, Lord, that nobody in this room came to hear me, but we all came to hear you. So we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. God, we don't make room for you this morning, but we give you the whole room. Have your way in this service and in our lives today. We thank you and we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody said amen. Amen. 2024 is the year of reformation. I'm going to say that one more time. 2024 is the year of reformation. Reforming is the act of improving the existing form or condition of institutions or practices intended to make a striking change for the better in social or political or religious affairs. To reform is to change a thing, a practice, or a doctrine in order to improve and correct it. A simplified Way to, to define this is this, reformation is to make wrong things right in the sight of the Lord. Reformation is righteousness. Reformation is making the crooked paths straight. I want to remind you from last week, from my message last week, the five characteristics of a reformer. Number one, reformers are consecrated. They are set apart. They are holy unto the Lord. It means that there are some things that may have been okay for you last year that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you are not okay for you this year. How many of you have already felt that in this year? There are some things that we say, you know what? I thought that was all right, but I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's because reformers are consecrated. Number two, reformers are people of action. I said reformers are people of action. Reformers are people of prayer. Reformers are people that cry loud and spare not. The season of sitting back and watching other people spiritually lead is over. This is the year of reformation. Number three, reformers desire to please the Lord. We say it every single Sunday when we dismiss every service. Lord, teach us your ways that we may know you and find favor. We are looking for the favor of the Lord and we find that when we walk in the way of the Lord. Number four, reformers use their influence. Whatever voice, whatever platform, whatever resources you have, you use it as a reformer in the kingdom. Number five, reformers are fearless. You see, when you fear man, you fear everything. But when you fear the Lord, you fear nothing else. 
John 3.30 says this, he must increase, but I must decrease. That is the cry of the reformer, is that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. But I want to give you a caution this morning. If God has called you to pursue something, be prepared for the enemy to tempt you with the opposite of that pursuit. You see, the enemy always attacks your obedience to the word of the Lord. And last Sunday, we stood up in this pulpit and declared that this is the year of reformation. We declared that we would cry out. We declared that we would use our voices. We declared that we would be consecrated. We declared that we would be holy. We declared that we would be humble. We declared less of us and more of him. We declared a decrease of our own flesh and an increase of the spirit of the Lord. We declared that we would profess righteousness and holiness and we would pursue it in our personal lives first, in our families, in our church, in our city, in the state, the nation, and the nations. And when you stand up and make that declaration, make no, I don't want to make no bones about it. We have declared war against the works of the enemy. If our heart's cry is for the spirit of God to increase and for our flesh to decrease, you can expect attacks of offense this year. Speaking of Jesus, Peter said in 1 Peter 2.8 that Jesus would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The word of God sometimes is offensive. And as we pursue reformation in this year, the spirit of offense will pursue you. Because the enemy knows that if he can get you angry, offended he can he can feed and strengthen your flesh while weakening your spirit because for so many of us the voices of offense are much louder than the voice of the holy spirit and we become offended at everything and we live in a society today where offense is now a currency in today's society. Offense is not something that we should fight. Offense is a badge of honor for a lot of people. And instead of asking the most important question as it relates to offense, the first question you should ask yourself when you feel offended is, should I be offended? No, we say to ourselves, I'm offended, therefore it's valid. No matter the reason, I'm offended, and I need to tell everybody I'm offended. I need to stand in that offense. I own that offense. It becomes part of my personality. It becomes part of my identity. Instead of stopping and going, wait just a second, Les. Hang on. This offended you. Should you be offended? About 99.99% of the time, the Holy Spirit goes, suck it up, buttercup. Get over it. You don't need to be offended. I work it out with the Lord. I'm excited to announce that next Sunday, Pastor Landon will be here in the tent. And he's going to be preaching on the spirit of offense. It's so pertinent and important in this hour. The second enemy that's going to attack you is pride. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You're going to feel attacks of self-centeredness. James 3.16 says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You remember last year, one of, or last Sunday, one of the prophetic words that we released was that this would be a year of order. That the men in this house, in your own homes and in the house, would begin to cultivate order. That women in this house would become women of order. This would be a year of greater order in every area. And jealousy and selfish ambition and self-centeredness, the Bible says that that produces disorder in our lives. There'll be attacks of ingratitude. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? Because they didn't thank the Lord ingratitude sneaks up on us ingratitude can attack you when you don't even realize it i think that ingratitude is one of the most vile traits in a human being 
Someone who has a reason to be grateful and instead walks in ingratitude is vile. But I've felt it creep up on me. I've even felt it at the beginning of this year. I was really hoping and praying, as you guys know, that we'd be in that building first Sunday, January 7th. That was my hope. First Sunday of the new year, 2024. We're going to leave the tent behind and move on. It didn't happen. We failed an inspection, and I felt ungrateful. I felt ingratitude crouching and coming into my heart and being ungrateful for the tent and being frustrated that we have to come back here. And then we come, and in the midst of the cold, the Lord meets us here. His presence is so strong. We must pursue gratitude. Don't get confused and think that if you do nothing, you'll just have a grateful heart. If you do nothing, ingratitude will take over your heart. I want to pastor you for a moment. Can I pastor you this morning? I want you to settle in. I want you to decide right now, don't be offended. And I want you to make a decision. This morning, I'm going to spiritually grow. Come on, just say it to yourself. Say, this morning, I'm going to spiritually grow. You see, you can't move forward without the humility to acknowledge where you currently are. And if you want to be a reformer and make the crooked path straight, we can't do that if we don't know what the straight path is. And so this morning, I'm going to talk to you not about the enemies of reformation, the things that will try to take us off of the path of reformation. When we stand up and we make bold declarations before the Lord and we step into the call of God and the prophetic word over our lives, we must understand that the enemy has heard us too. This doesn't mean, this isn't a message to instill fear into your heart. It's a message to remind you we're in a spiritual battle. The Bible teaches us over and over and over again that we are in a spiritual battle. And such a large percentage of whether we are successful in that battle or not is determined by our acknowledgement and our realization that what we are fighting is spiritual. You see, the enemy will convince us that the situations we're fighting are practical, that it has something to do with this or something to do with that, or my thyroid is off, or it's cold and it makes me angry, or this is going on and that's going on. But if we can just stop and take a breath and look and go, hey, wait, 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 wait. I just declared war on the enemy. I just said that this was a year of reformation. I just declared this would be a year of order. I just declared this would be a year that I pursued holiness. Of course, there's going to be a spiritual attack against my life. The first enemy of reformation is the enemy of confusion. It is the enemy of confusion because reformation at its core is a pursuit of truth. It is a pursuit of truth, no matter how uncomfortable that truth is. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible because Jesus teaches us that the pursuit of the truth of the word of God will set us free. But you see, we live in a culture and a society today that no longer asks the question, is it true? It asks the question, does this offend me? And when we ask the question, what's appropriate to say? What will cause the least amount of waves at my office and in my family and in my political career? What is the, the, what is the, the a culturally appropriate stance for me to take? It will often lead us away from truth. Because truth is often offensive. Why? Because people don't like to be faced with the truth. We think that love means affirmation of all things. But love is the ability to, with compassion, tell someone the truth. That's good. Last night I was looking through old pictures. And I was going through some stuff. And back in 2020, y'all, I looked good. <laughs> I was in the gym every week. 
I was looking good. Nikki had snapped this picture of me on the beach, and I was like, Lord, have mercy. Times they have changed. And my son goes, well, it's your own fault. Get up and go. You keep saying, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go to the gym. Yeah. I didn't like it. I didn't like that. I didn't like being faced with that truth. But that's love. That's truth. He didn't say what's going to offend. He said, what's the truth? We got to pursue truth. No matter the cost, we pursue truth. No matter how uncomfortable, we pursue the truth of the word of God. We've stopped asking, is it true? And we've asked only, how do I feel about it? And we think that our feelings should lead us. We follow our heart. We follow our empathy. This is how I feel towards this person. and Therefore, that's going to determine how I act towards that person. It's going to determine the the stance that I take on this issue or that issue or the other issue. Instead of death to our flesh and saying to ourselves, I pursue the truth of the word of the Lord because I know what Jesus said and that the truth of the Bible will set us free. Not your placating of your flesh or someone else's, but the truth shall set you free. You see, if you trust your heart, you will be foolish and immature. For some people, foolishness and immaturity and foolishness in their speech and their actions and their finances and the way they lead or their lack of leadership, it seems to come naturally to some people. Some of us can look back on our lives and look and see so many foolish decisions that we made and it seems to come naturally. I've been thinking about that a lot over the last, well, gosh, years I've thought about this topic. And what, I, what I've come to see through counseling in many people and in situations in my own life is that often the the normality of foolishness in one's life happens because we trust whatever thoughts or inclinations cross our mind. We just trust ourselves. We trust our gut. We follow what we feel. Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. This is part of the problem is because people think that your mind is wisdom. People think that your conscience should lead you. The greatest evils ever perpetrated in history were perpetrated by people with a clear conscience. You see, we have this idea that if you just listen to your inner self, that it's going to lead you down the right path. Listen, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in all of human history. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people were killed for good causes. (laughs) Hundreds of millions of people were slaughtered and murdered and burned alive and starved to death by people who believed in their heart they were doing the right thing. The greatest perpetrators of evil slept like babies. Their consciences were clear. Because somewhere along the way, we began the process of uncoupling morality from the truth of God's word. And when you do that, and you listen to yourself, and you follow your own mind, your own heart, your own emotional inclinations, it is idol worship. You have exalted yourself above the Lord. It is self-worship. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot understand your heart. You cannot understand your empathetic feelings toward another person. I'm not unempathetic. I posted about empathy this week. Every time I do, I get a lot of response. I get a lot of DMs, I get a lot of comments, I get a lot of, you're the, you're the problem, this is the problem with the church, it's people like you, and you, all of those things. And so I've had a lot of time to think about this. Listen, empathy can be a beautiful thing. We're not soulless, heartless individuals. I don't want you to be. I certainly hope that I'm not, and that's not how the Lord created us. Empathy can be beautiful, but your empathy alone often leads to evil. 
The way that you feel towards another person and allowing that feeling, that emotional feeling to lead your actions often leads to doing much more harm than good. You see, empathy is completely separated from morality. Empathy says, this is how I feel. It is not rooted and grounded in anything, but compassion. Compassion is the action of a love grounded in something above yourself. Compassion doesn't just look at a moment in time and the empathy you feel toward another person, but compassion goes beyond that and says, what does the Bible say? What are the long-term effects of my decisions in this moment? You see, I might meet somebody who's strung out on drugs and who is desperate for that next hit, who is in deep pain, physical, emotional pain in that moment, and they just are looking for a hit to get them through the next moment. And my empathy, my heart goes out to them. I feel their pain and empathy may lead me to help them. It's why the federal government will give out needles to people. Because our empathy is helping them get their next hit because our heart goes out to them. But compassion says it is more than what I feel in this moment, but it is true love for that individual. And compassion may say, I'm not giving you any money. I'm not giving you a needle. I'm not helping you to continue to destroy yourself, even though it's going to hurt in this moment. And even though my heart breaks for you in this moment, I'm led by something other than what I feel. Proverbs chapter three, beginning in verse five says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. He will do what? He will be a reformer in your life. He will make the crooked paths straight. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Ah, oh. if we could just get this, if we could just grab a hold of this. If we could say, I, I really, really love when empathy and compassion happen to cross over. When what I want to do and what I feel happens to be the wise and biblically appropriate thing to do, those are great moments. That's awesome. I love when that happens, but that is not what's going to drive me. I'm going to ask, am I doing good? Not does this feel good? Matthew chapter 15 verse 19 says this, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Numbers 1539, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. That's numbers. That ain't me. That's the Bible. <laughs> Proverbs 23, 19, hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. It doesn't say let your heart direct you. It says you direct your heart. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of the Lord, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, you don't just go, ah. Oh, let me just feel what's the will. No, no, no. By discernment, you discern by testing what is the will of the Lord. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Ecclesiastes 10.2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart inclines him to the left. What does that mean? What is that scripture telling you? It's telling you that your conscience is meaningless. I hate to tell you this this morning. It got real quiet. When I say things like this, a lot of Christians go, well, I, I never. I can't believe you would say that to me. What do you mean my conscience is meaningless? I grew up knowing that my conscience was important. I have a little cricket that would tell me. Jiminy Cricket was the conscience. My inner voice, it's what guides me. No, it's meaningless. Outside of a few sociopaths, everybody that does evil has a clear conscience. 
When Hitler and the Nazis perpetrated the Holocaust in Germany, their consciences were clear. They believed they were doing what was best. I promise they slept well at night. You see, this is a year of clarity. Lord spoke to me that 2024 would be a year of clarity. And you see, the enemy will not sit back and cede territory to righteousness. He always attacks clarity. He always attacks an understanding. He always tries to bring confusion. Because if he can get you confused and you can no longer see the destination, you won't make the path straight. The Bible, the Lord told me, he said, your boldness will reveal their passivity and your clarity will reveal confusion. You see, the fearful hate the fearless and the confused hate the clear and the fearful hate the bold. And so when you begin to be bold and clear, those that are passive and those that are confused and those that are fearful will hate you for it. Pursue boldness, pursue clarity, pursue it anyways. So how do we pursue clarity and understanding? Well, first, we need to read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read it every day. Consume the word of God. Go to the Bible when you are confused about a matter. Seek the Lord about that matter. And if it rubs you the wrong way, then lean in because it's probably the Lord. If you read something in the Bible and it's really bothering you, read it again and again and again and pursue that thing because it is likely killing your flesh. You see, when the wise read the Bible and they find something they disagree with, they assume that they're wrong. But when the foolish read the Bible and find something they disagree with, they assume that the Bible is wrong. You see, we have a lot of foolish people that are even teaching the Bible and they say foolish things like, I wish the Bible didn't say this but this is what it says and I don't understand this and I don't necessarily agree with this, but it's what the Bible, stop apologizing for the word of God. Acting like you have a greater sense of love than the creator of the universe. Acting like your empathy, your emotion, your heart is clearer and more loving than the king of the universe, the father of all, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the one that created you out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into your very lungs. And we apologize for his words. How else do we pursue clarity? You fast. The prophetic word over the house, one of the words over the house this year is that we would have days of consecration, seasons, and some consecrations to last for an entire year. The first fast of this year I've called you to, and we're in the midst of it, a 21-day fast. Somebody said, well, I prayed and asked the Lord, and I, I, I'm just asking the Lord if I should fast. Well, uh, you're, you're submitted. You're part of this house. We're fasting. Now, the rest of the fast, the rest of the seasons of consecration, go and ask the Lord, what do you have me to do this year? Is there something? It doesn't mean it's a sin. If it's a sin, let me tell you something. When you lay down a sin, that's not a fast. That's like, <laughs> that's like when people start tithing. They talk about how generous they are. No, you just quit stealing from God. You didn't get generous. You just quit stealing. Somebody said, well, I gave, I gave part of my time. Well, it's like coming in, my, robbing my house and go, well, I didn't steal anything from your bedroom. Just the living room. Oh, well, thank you. How generous. No, but ask the Lord, what are seasons of consecration for me? What is it that you want me to lay down? There may be some things that God wants you to just push aside, not because it's a sin, not because it's wrong, just because he said so. Just because we're taking our flesh under submission, we are pursuing death to the flesh. And the other way that we can pursue clarity and fight confusion is to pursue holiness. You see, every great reformation movement Every great revival died out because the people stopped living holy lives. Ah. Because the people stopped living holy lives. I'm going to give you a pastor moment. I'm going to pass to you real quick. Many of us are poorly leading ourselves. I want to encourage you this year, lead yourself. Don't just wait until somebody tells you what to do.
Don't just wait until your pastor tells you what to do, but lead yourself. Say, you know what? I'm done being disobedient to the Lord. I'm done being greedy and holding back giving to the Lord. I'm done with my disobedience. I'm done with that secret sin. I'm done gossiping behind people's back. I'm done with the foul language that comes out of my mouth. And I know that it doesn't please the Lord, but I've justified it within my own mind for so many years that I've silenced the voice of the Holy Spirit, but I'm done. I'm going to lead myself this year. The second enemy of reformation of personal reformation. Remember, you cannot go and reform this city without first reforming yourself. One of the enemies of personal reformation is the enemy of idols. The Lord gave me a new aspect of the definition for idol. He said this, anything that diminishes your devotion to Jesus is an idol. And I faced this head on. Right at the beginning of this year, I faced this. It was right after Christmas. Pastor Jordan called me. You know, Pastor Jordan be, be bringing me a lot of bad news lately. I just picked up the phone. I said, hello. I know we had an inspection today. He said, yeah, it's not great news. You know, I wanted to say, you know what? Just call me back when it is. So we failed our electrical inspection, and this is the list of things. We got to order this stuff. It's going to take this long, and then we got to do this, and we got to do that. And I knew at that moment we weren't getting in on January 7th, and I also knew it was going to get real cold real quick. And if you've been coming to Mercy Culture long at all, you know I hate, I hate, I hate, 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 hate the cold weather. I don't understand why it ever needs to get below 80 degrees, but I digress. And I knew that this was coming. And I, I got so frustrated. I, I was like, all right, Pastor Jordan, thank you so much for calling. Have a, have a great day. Have a great day. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. Like it's his fault, you know. And Nikki was in there, and I'm just, you know, just being a baby. And, and I said I was so excited to go back, and I was so excited. I, was, I, don't, I, don't, I can't wait to preach the word of the year in the new building, and we're not even going to be in it. And I just I don't even want to go back. I just want to stay on Christmas vacation. And the Lord brought back to my memory a moment a few years ago. I had the, the great privilege of going to India. Got to minister in India, and we weren't in the tourist part of India. We were in a place called Gujarat, and it wasn't even a big city in Gujarat. And when I tell people from India where I went, they always look at me and go, why? So I don't know what that means, but it's usually not good. You went to Gujarat? Oh, my God. It wasn't the great, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the tourist place. And so we were there in the midst of really in the jungle and with, with some of the poorest people in the world. And there was just one service. And before service, we went to the pastor's home. It's a beautiful story, the, just the persecution that these people have gone through and the church that the Lord has built through their hands. And I walk up, I, we drive up, and I look at the house, and the house is made of dirt and this man and this woman are standing in front of their home with the biggest smile on their face. They're so proud to show us their home. It's dirt walls, dirt floor, beds made of mounds of dirt. I looked in the window seal and it's just got rebarbed because there's no glass in the window and it's a bunch of little toothbrushes laid in the window for their kids. And I started to weep. And I started weeping. And I had this thought, get yourself together. My thought was, imagine you invite somebody over to your house and they drive up in, their, in your front yard and start crying. <laughs> oh, they're so poor. Like, how insulting. <laughs> I was like, pull yourself together, man. And I kind of, I walked off and I'm out there and somebody came, literally, this really happened. Somebody came and tapped me like, hey, um, I, somebody got eaten by a tiger right here l last week. So you shouldn't be right by the... They really did. By the tree line, I was like, I'm going to cry over here. <laughs> did you say eaten by a tiger? <laughs> it's the truth. That really happened. So I'm crying, and I'm just, my, my heart is breaking, and I'm crying because I'm convicted. Wow. Crying because I felt about this big. 
I'm crying because sometimes we complain at the restaurant because there's not enough ice in our sparkling water. I'm crying because I complain because I'm cold in a tent on a Sunday morning when I'm going back to a home where I'm going to be quite warm. There's plenty of food and there ain't no tigers waiting to eat me. There's no mobs waiting to kill me for preaching the gospel. But we complain. Ingratitude. Idols. The Lord reminded me of the persecuted church all around the world, the underground church in China and in Saudi Arabia and places all over the world where they pour over a single tattered page of the Bible that they can hold on to. And not only are they dealing with it in that moment, they know that their situation will never change. It'll never change. It's never going to get better. For their entire life, it's all they have to look forward to. There's no conference coming up. There's no special event. There's no new building that they're waiting to get into. That's all they're ever going to have. And I'm complaining. And the Lord said to me, anything that would cause you to question your obedience to me is an idol that you have built above me. And I ask the Lord to forgive me and to lay down that idol. And I'm asking you this morning, are there any idols in your life? Is there anything that you say, if God took this away or if my situation took this away, would cause my devotion to the Lord to be diminished in any way? The third enemy of reformation is the enemy of performance. We see this in the life of Moses in Exodus chapter 4. God has called Moses to go and deliver the people of God out of the hands of the Egyptians. And he has told him, I want you to pro pro profess these things. I want you to proclaim these things. I want you to go and set my people free. And Moses begins to tell the Lord, well, I can't. You know, I stutter. And, and what if I embarrass myself? And, uh, you know, I don't have enough Instagram followers. And, and I, I'm not as young as I used to be. Or I'm too young. Or, or I don't have this. I don't have, I'm not a pastor. I'm, I'm not ordained. I don't have this education or that. All of the excuses that we have as to why we shouldn't be reformers. And he starts telling the Lord, I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. In verse 11, the Lord says to him, who has made man's mouth? I love this. See, the Lord speaks to Moses like he does to me. Some of y'all be telling me what the Lord says to you. I'm like, he never, why doesn't he talk to me like that? <laughs> Darling, I just want you to know. Like, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And then he says this, now then go. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. And then Moses complains to the Lord again. Please, Lord, now send the messenger by whomever you will. He just tells him, send somebody else. In verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And then he said, fine, you can take your brother Aaron with you. But you need to understand, God's hand was on Moses. God's will, his perfect will, was to call Moses. He told Moses, be a reformer. But the enemy, the enemy of reformation, the enemy of performance rose up against Moses. He began to be afraid he began to say I, I i just need to perform i need to be perfect i need to have it all together and he fought the will and the word of the lord he became a little bit too professional became a little bit too big for his britches. He got to the place where he just said, no, 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 everything's got to be lined up perfectly, exactly the way I want it. You see, the enemy is after your childlikeness. Matthew chapter 18, verse 2 says this, truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven.
The cry of he must increase and we must decrease is truly the cry of childlikeness. Lord, give me a childlike faith. Give me a childlike faith. Let me recognize and realize my total and full dependence upon you. Not that I'm not a performer. I'm not dependent upon myself. No, I'm dependent upon you. Give me that childlike faith. This is childlike, not childish. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There's some men and women in this room that need to grow up. I love you. You're amazing. You're great. Wonderful. Grow up. (laughs) Some of us need to grow up. There's some men that need to man up in this room. There's some men that play more video games than you do pray with your wife and children. It's time to grow up. That, that, that hit a nerve. <laughs> Listen, order is not performance. Order is not performance. Remember one of the prophetic words over the house this year is that there would be greater order. Performance is to impress people and order is to revere God. As we're going into the new building in a few short weeks, there's going to be some things that are different. We're going to have different lighting. We're going to have a great big LED wall on the back wall so you can actually see the words and watch the videos and it'll be better than the screens. And we're going to have, you know, luxuries like flushing toilets and... I flushed the first toilet. I had the inaugural flush. I videoed it. I was like, whoosh. Yes, the sound of flushing toilets. We're going to have heating and air conditioning and all of those things. There's going to be a level of excellence. It's order. It doesn't mean it's performance. So before you start to compile your email that you want to send to me saying, you know, lights are just performance and we need to stop. It's not performance. It's order. You see, excellence turns to performance when we take our eyes off of Jesus. Lights don't make things be performance. And the paint color on the wall is not what determines it. Is is our eyes uh, eyes upon Jesus or are they upon the people? You see, we're being given more. We're being given more when we take this land and we have to steward it well. Luke chapter 12, verse 48 says, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to him, they entrusted much. They will demand the more. Understand that as we take this territory, we are expected to steward it well. The fourth enemy of reformation is the enemy of a hard heart. The Lord has taken me to Revelation chapter 2 over and over this year. You see, Jesus really gives us the blueprints of heaven all throughout this this, this chapter. He's writing a letter. He's speaking to the different churches, and he's telling them what he feels and what what he senses and what he sees in their actions. And he writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, I love how you love. You love people so well and you love me so well. And he praises them on their love, but he says, I have this thing against you, Ephesus. He says, you have tolerated that spirit, Jezebel. In other words, you have tolerated manipulation and control. You have tolerated sexual immorality in other words jesus is saying to the church in ephesus you've loved really well but you haven't been a reformer you you haven't made the crooked path straight you've refused to call out injustice and unrighteousness and and then he writes to the church in thyatira and he says you are a justice driven people you fight for what's right you call out the false prophets you refuse to let People lie in my name or in the name of God. And you call for righteousness and for holiness. And he's praising them for that. He said, but I have this thing against you. You have lost your first love. You have forgotten how to love me first and love people well. When I was praying into my fast for this year, the Lord told me to fast for a soft heart. He said, I'm going to give you a soft heart because I'm sending you to war. You need a soft heart in the battle. 
Family, we cannot be a church that is so focused on reformation and justice we forget how to love Jesus. And every time anybody asked Jesus how to love him, he responded to love his people. He said, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. He said, you will tell that you, they will tell that you are my disciples by your love one for another. When they asked him, Lord Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We cannot lose our love for Jesus and for his people. The fifth enemy of reformation is the enemy of fear. Afraid to lose our reputation afraid that somebody might not like us, afraid that we may lose some followers. You see, Jesus was unafraid of losing people. What he was afraid of was losing his father's favor. In John chapter 6, verse 66, it says this, after this, after this what? After this difficult teaching, Jesus had just told them, you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's not an easy thing to hear. He said, you're going to have to be death to self, and you're going to have to pursue me. And it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, a lot of believers, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians are much more concerned with amassing fans than creating disciples. That's why every message and every conversation is built and crafted in a way that will make people feel the best and the most comfortable. Let me carefully craft every belief that I have so as not to lose any fans. No, no, we cannot be afraid of people. We must fear the Lord. Number six is the enemy of frustration and disobedience. Luke chapter 22, verse 49. This is the story of Jesus when he was in the garden and the, the guards came to arrest him and take him to his crucifixion, he knew what was coming. And the disciples were all around them. I love this because I can totally, uh, I, I vibe with these disciples. One of them says, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They were like, look, post up, let's go. They were like, you coming for my boy? I'm coming for you. You got something to say? I got a sword. Let's go. All, just Jesus, all you got to do is halfway look and I'm down. Let's go. Name the place, name the time. I shall be there. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And then one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. That's right. I love it. He said, shall we strike with the sword? Boom. He didn't even wait for him to answer. Cut off his right ear. If you don't, uh, that's the kind of energy I want. But Jesus said, no more of this. Jesus looked and said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed it. You see, frustration will tempt you to fight with your own strength. It is often against the will of the one for whom you're fighting. You see, we're fighting for the will of God and and. Frustration tempts you in your zeal to fight for the things of the Lord, to pick up your own strength instead of to fight with him. Frustration will lead to disobedience. Again, I was frustrated at the end of the year. Frustration came at me at the very beginning of this year of Reformation. And we were preparing for solemn assembly this week. And, and I just said, we're not doing solemn assembly. We'll wait till we get in the building. I mean, I was just like, it's cold. Uh, people are tired. I'm tired. I want to be in the building. We just, we'll wait. We'll do, we'll do solemn assembly the week that we move into the building. And I called one of our elders and one of our leaders, and I was like, here, here's what we're doing. And she goes, it makes perfect sense. Like, that is so practical. I totally understand it. She goes, but did you, did you ask the Lord? And I go, no. <laughs> Full transparency. No, I did not. And she was like, well, you know, let's ask, why don't you ask the Lord? I'm like, I know, that's why I, I knew that's what you were going to say. That's pretty much why I called, but I'm frustrated. And it was our first staff meeting of the year. And I came in and we started praying. And in less than two minutes, the presence of God filled that little room. 
And I was on my knees praying and I heard the Lord ask me clearly. He said, who are you doing this for? Who is it for? Is it for the people? Is it to appease them? Is it to please them? You want to not do solemn assembly because people will be uncomfortable? Is, is it for you? Is it for this building? Is it, what are you doing? Who is this for? What if it's just me that shows up and I want to be there in the tent? I want this week of solemn assembly. Will, will you do it just for me? And I wept and I cried and I repented before the Lord. And he told me this year, you will not lead in frustration. Worship team, if you would, come on up. And I knew, began to pursue that word. We're not going to lead in frustration. And we had an incredible solemn assembly week. So thankful that the Lord met us here every single day. Numbers chapter 2, we see this story of Moses. Here we have Moses again, the great reformer Moses. And he's leading the, the children of Israel. He's already led them out of Egypt. They have already seen the most incredible, miraculous things. They've seen oceans part before their eyes. They've seen plagues uh, release them from the hands of Pharaoh. They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And here they are complaining in the wilderness. They're complaining. They're telling Moses, I can't believe there's nothing to drink here. You should have left us in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we had food, we had water. Now you've led us out here to the wilderness to die. They were ungrateful. They were being led by their emotions. They were frustrated with God, frustrated with Moses. The people blamed Moses and said, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers, they said. Verse 5, why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink. Why did you do this to us? You see, ingratitude always tries to distract the reformer. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went to the entrance of the tabernacle where they fell face down on the ground. And then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them. When they turned from the people and they stopped looking to the people and they looked to the Lord and they went into the tabernacle and they humbled themselves and fell face down on the ground, then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared. And the Lord said to Moses, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community as the people watch. Speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water you will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. You see, Moses started this process in obedience. He did what he was told. He humbled himself. He turned from the people. He went into God's presence. He humbled himself. The Lord showed up. The Lord spoke. He stepped out in obedience. This is the place that some of you are in this morning. You have humbled yourself. You've stopped looking at the people. You've gotten before the Lord. His presence showed up. He told you what to do. And you've stepped out in obedience. But then frustration creeps in. Verse 10 says, Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. What happened? He looked back to the people. He took his eyes off the Lord and he looked back at them. And frustration rose up again. He heard the Lord say, do this or do that. And then he looked again at his situation. He said, must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and he struck the rock twice with his staff. And water gushed out. The Lord answered. And the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. This is a year that you're no longer satisfied with fruit from your frustration. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough 
to do what? To demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel. You will not lead them into the land I'm giving them. God equated the frustration which Moses led in with the lack of holiness. God said to Moses, you became frustrated. You looked at your situation. You didn't just listen to me, trust in me. More of me and less of you. No, no, you picked up your frustration. You began to lead in your own strength and you didn't demonstrate my holiness. It is a lack of holiness to be frustrated. It is taking God off of his place of authority and sovereignty in our lives. We've been stewarding a word for over a year now that we would be, we would go from a tent of meeting to a house of glory. Another translation for that word holiness is the word glory. Uh, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, when we lead in frustration, when we don't walk in obedience, we're not a house of glory. You see, glory is more than a greater manifestation of his presence, which I'm believing we will see. No, glory is when we demonstrate his holiness by our trust and obedience in him. If you're frustrated this morning, the Lord wants to deliver you from frustration. You see, dead men don't get frustrated. It's really difficult to be frustrated when it's not about you, but it's all about him. You see, when we get frustrated, it's because we don't believe that he's in control. I got frustrated with that building because somewhere I didn't believe him. That's the, that's the cold, hard truth. It was, oh, this surprised the Lord. Oh, less of me and more of Jesus. Less of me and more of Jesus. Let's go back to our story in Exodus 3. Moses in that wilderness looking at that burning bush. This is God calling Moses out from among the dominant culture. It's calling Moses this unlikely vessel of reformation, this stuttering man who was raised in the palace of the very man who is who is subjugating God's people into slavery. God is calling him out. Verse 3, And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight of why the bush isn't burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. He said, Moses, Moses. And then Moses said, what? He said, here I am. Here I am. And then God said, don't come near, but take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. God tells Moses who he is. And the Bible says that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. What did Moses do? First, he turned aside to behold the Lord. Everybody just close your eyes for a moment. I want you in your spirit to just turn aside, turn aside from everything that has distracted you and look at him. Come on, just say it out loud. Say, he must increase and I must decrease. Turn aside and look at the Lord. And then Moses said to God, he said, here I am. He said, here I am. See, Moses was available. It doesn't mean Moses didn't have doubt. Just a couple verses later, Moses says, God, I can't do that. But, but his first response was no hesitancy at all. Here, here I am, Lord. And then God said what? He said, take off the sandals from your feet for the place you're standing is holy ground. God said, nothing needs to be between you and my holiness. Father, would you reveal to us right now anything that stands between us and your holiness. Would you show us, God? 
Would you show us doubt and unbelief? Would you show us fear? Would you show us any sin, any compromise in our lives? And Lord, would you deliver us? And then Moses hid his face before the Lord. He leaned into the fear and the reverence of the Lord. The Lord showed me this week that the journey that we were on last year, the spiritual journey, was to prepare us for reformation this year. Church family, if you've been around here, you know last year we began the year by the pursuit of meekness. Then we fought against a spirit of hesitancy. And we closed the year fasting for reverence, awe, and wonders. Reformers in this room today, be like Moses. Be meek and humble, focused only on Jesus. Be available, not hesitant. Be holy, acknowledging the awe and wonder of the Lord and family. Be reverent. We worship you, Jesus. Worship team, just sing for a moment. As the worship team sings over you, I just want you to begin to ask the Lord, Lord, would you make me holy? Lord, would you remove any hesitancy? Would you remove anything that stands between me and your holiness? God, would you fight the enemies of reformation over my life? Lord, would you make me a man or a woman of reverence? 